In the 17th chapter of Jeremiah, we read these unforgettable words as God through him exclaimed, The great blessing upon those that trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. As we've gathered together this evening, those who've placed their trust and hope in the Lord, may we be encouraged by consideration of another lesson in the series on the Colossians. We began last Lord's Day evening a series of studies on that 12th book of the New Testament, that book consisting of four chapters, some 95 verses. And inasmuch as we began that series of studies on the Colossian letter then, we came to appreciate some of the opening comments that set the stage for much of our study as it would continue in that book. I've rehearsed just a few of them for your consideration. Namely, the central theme is the Christ of the church. As the church is lifted high in the Colossian letter and the concepts concerning it are set forth in such power and straightforwardness, it never deviates, though, from its association to the very one that is its head, the very one upon whom its foundation is based, the very one who sets forth the perfectness and fullness of all aspects related to it, Christ of the church. We did see specifically, in a more applied fashion, the great tri triune consideration of faith and hope and love, verses 4 and 5. We also saw the impressive character of the fact that it's possible to know God's grace in truth. We spend a bit of time appreciating that there are some who would disagree on that point, that there are some who feel that God's grace is far better felt than told when Paul affirmed by inspired nature that such is not the case. We know it in truth, verse 6. In verses 9 through 12, we reminded ourselves of the imperative of Christian growth, striving to walk worthy of God's call, striving to walk pleasing, strengthening ourselves in knowledge and mind in our walk with the Savior each day. But with that said, that closed our lesson last Lord's Day evening and prepared us for our next installment, installment number two in this series of lessons. I would invite you to then to look with me then beginning in verse number 12. And specifically, we'll begin reading there, but our consideration will be in verses 13 through 23 this evening. As we do that, may I ask you to know that the central concept set before us tonight will be summarized in three words, the preeminence of Christ. We began to see that His character, His position, His basis is set forth so highly in this book. And Paul does not spend long until he brings us fully to consider the thoroughness of that idea, the absolute preeminence of Jesus Christ himself. Let's begin reading then in verse number 12. And let's first read through verse 17. Colossians 1, verses 12 through 17. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. If we might notice that the language that Paul often uses, at least in the Greek presentation, are very lengthy sentences. 
In fact, if one seeks to locate the periods in the opening chapter of the Colossian letter, they will not be as often found as one might anticipate. When we concluded the lesson in verse 12, you might notice it does not end with a period. And that's the reason that I reread it this evening, for the idea of verse 13 will tie to it rather directly. Paul reminded us in verse 12 by inspiration that as saints we are those that are incredibly blessed, able to be partakers of the inheritance of God in light. Isn't it amazing how often the scriptures will direct us to the beauty and power of light? representative of God's revelation, representative of the nature of godliness and righteousness. Wasn't it our Savior who himself stated in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, and he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. If you and I desire to be those who walk in the way of light, those who are aware of where they're going and where they're headed, those who are not overcome by the sadness of darkness, we need to be those that are the saints, those that are thus able to walk in the blessed life that God has revealed. Wasn't it described by David himself in Psalm 119, verse 105, speaking of the nature of God's Word? Did he not say there that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path? Reminded us of the glorious light that we're able to follow day by day, a light that in many ways is described in the text before us. That takes on an added significance when we appreciate the consequence of it in verse 13. Paul had just described the great blessing that was the Colossians, that they had been such that they were the saints and thus followers of light. But notice in verse 12, "...who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son." Standing in stark contrast to the nature of light is this matter of darkness. These Colossians had been so greatly blessed to thus now be those who follow the light, but notice where they had been. Verse 13, the power of darkness had previously overcome them, and they had lived in a way such that that darkness was the descriptive word for their life, and such was no longer the case. Hadn't they been so richly and abundantly blessed? And is it the same true of you and me today? Those who no longer live a life overcome by the shadowy darknesses of that which is sinful and evil, but rather following the illuminated character of the great blessing of the shining nature of God's Son's face. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. When we follow the nature of that light and the things that it leads us unto, we can only be amazed that Paul reminded those Colossians of the great blessing that was theirs. Tran delivered us from the power of darkness. Isn't it interesting how enslaving and how powerful darkness can be? Of course, Paul mentioned that for our understanding here, the power of darkness. Is it not true that perhaps you and I have been well able to understand that that which is in darkness can often be an enslaving thing? It can be overwhelming. And if we aren't careful, we can find ourselves in mass and encompassed. In the, second, in the letter of 2 Peter... Specifically, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, Peter made various comments about the nature of the danger that lay ahead of those to whom he wrote. And he specifically identified a situation like this. There were some who had been freed from or experienced the liberty from the nature of the corruptions of this world. They had obeyed the gospel. They had known the great goodness of God through the Savior. 
But in verse 20 he says, These had now been overcome again and entangled by those corruptions and things of the world to the point that their latter end was worse than the first. We notice the power that Satan can often utilize and bring before us, enslaving us again in that from which we once were free. The amazing statement of verse 13 was again a commendation of those Colossians, and isn't it so still for you and me? We as saints and as Christians do not follow that life of darkness and overcome by the power thereof, but rather we have chosen to follow the Savior and the blessed light that His life offers and the promises to be found therein. As that verse closes, might we notice that the singular effect by which this was known hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Notice that these who now were walking in light knowing the inheritance of God through Christ, were those that had been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son, those who were not the followers of that darkness. We may pause to reflect a bit on the consequence of this statement. Isn't it interesting that Paul does not leave an intermediate territory? Either one is a follower of the darkness, or he or she has been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. There is no middle ground. The Bible does not define some intermediate state where one is almost saved. Wasn't it true that to be almost saved is still to be altogether lost? And so it is defined and set forth before us here. The blessedness of those Colossians is still the wonderful blessedness of us in that we too have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That kingdom we understand from other passages to be identified as the glorious body of Christ the wonderful entity known as the church. On that occasion, when in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew, the 16th chapter, our Savior entered into conversation with the apostles and asked them, Whom do men say that I am? And they, with great interest and immediacy, responded, Some say Jeremiah, John the Baptist, or perhaps Isaiah, one of the prophets. However, Jesus in directness asked, Who do you say that I am? Peter, in his bold and aggressive way, said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, in response to that fact, did not, of course, in any way correct or usurp it, but rather affirmed its truth and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven." And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The notice might well be made for us that Jesus affirmed that he soon would establish his church in verse 18. But in the next verse he called it the kingdom. The kingdom and the church are one and the same. And thus the Colossians were members of the kingdom. It is a tragedy of eternal moment and in fact a sadness of monumental significance. For anyone to make the claim today the kingdom has not yet been established and has not yet come to be. Paul said the Colossians were members of it. And by his usage of the word us, he was a member of it as well. The Thessalonians were members of it. 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 11 and 12. John, the beloved apostle of love, was a member of it. Revelation 1 verses 9 and 10. It is again a tragic mistake for anyone to contemplate the kingdom has not yet come to be. It has. It's now almost 2,000 years old. 
even the Colossians, Paul said were members of that glorious body. The fact of the closing of verse 13 reminds us yet again of the greatness of the kingdom of God's dear Son. It is Christ's kingdom. He is its head, a fact we shall see represented again in just a few moments in verse 18. Might we notice as we move on to verse number 14, the next set of ideas that lift high the name of Christ and state what great things He has accomplished for you and me, as well, of course, as those Colossians, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. In consideration of that text, might we notice this word redemption and how it's employed? In whom we have redemption. That word whom is a type of pronoun making reference back to the nature of God's Son. That is, through Christ, we enjoy the benefits and the reality of redemption. It is not to be found in any other way. Though the world may often have set forth other thoughts and concepts, plans and ideas, it is not so. Peter affirmed, in fact, in Acts 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Rather, it's in Christ we have redemption through His blood. Might we notice that that redemption is inextricably tied to the forgiveness of sins. Redemption and the forgiveness of sins go hand in hand. It is Christ who by the shedding of His blood purchased a means by which our sins could be remitted. They thus being forgiven, we would not stand under the guilt of them. The word redemption comes from the verb that means to buy back. God through the blood of His Son bought us back from a devil's hell. Bought us back from an eternity separated from Him. Bought us back for the eternal sentence of being separated from the God who loved us so dearly to be redeemed. Christ's blood purchased and accomplished that fact. Might we notice that <clears throat> this concept stated in verse 14 reminds us of the easiness with which it's stated elsewhere. In Ephesians 1, verse number 7, the same wording almost verbatim appears. In 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, what is the agency by which you and I have been redeemed? Peter said it was not with corruptible things like silver and gold, but rather with the precious blood of Christ. On that hill outside Jerusalem some 20 centuries ago, a man was nailed to that old rugged cross, nailed to that tree. Not just any man, of course, but a sinless man. One who, by virtue of the artifact of the Old Testament, could in every way be a spotless and blemishless sacrifice for the sins of every person of every age until the end of time. That blood that he shed fulfilled that promise, prophecy of Zechariah 13.1. Outside Jerusalem, a fountain for cleansing shall be opened. And praise be unto God. When the blood of our Savior was shed by the will of heaven, that fountain for cleansing had been opened. Sins could be cleansed and remitted and washed away. The thought then of His blood challenges us to ask, if it is the nature of the blood that cleanses, how does one interact with that blood? How does one apply it to oneself? Does it occur in the character of belief? Does it occur by some verbal statement or confession? It is a fascinating matter to notice that the blood can be contacted. Paul was in fact told to do so. Others were commanded to do so. 
But might we remember that Paul himself, by virtue of presentation, stated to the Romans how that was done. In Romans 6, beginning in verse number 3, that inspired apostle, that beloved one so dear, affirmed the following, Know ye not, as he began that, that those who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Is it any wonder that Ananias commanded, commanded the man named Saul, Arise, why tarriest thou, and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Saul's sins forgiven at the time he was baptized, for there is when, according to the Roman letter, he was able to touch the blood of Jesus. These thoughts have reminded us of so very much, but yet so much more yet to come. In verse number 15, speaking again of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. The image of the invisible God. We understand that in the nature of God's divinity, in the nature of the deity that is the great God of heaven, we appreciate there are three personalities in that Godhead. God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not that they are those who oppose each other in any fashion, but rather they work in perfect harmony and in unity to carry out the will of heaven. Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God? In a very real way, when our Savior walked upon this earth for just a bit over a third of a century, He set before human eyes the very impression and image of the God of heaven. He behaved Himself in a way that was pleasing unto God. John 7, verse 16. He came to do the will of God, John 6, verse 38. His meat was to accomplish that which was the work of heaven, John chapter 4, verse 34. All the while, do we not read his own statement in John 14, 9? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Those are the words of our Savior. When we see his benevolent goodness, his sinless life, his character of desiring the goodness and will for others, we see God Himself. Paul affirmed the closeness with which they are linked in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Did not John, the beloved apostle, state in 1 John 5, verse 20, that this very one who is Jesus is there called God? Those facts remind us that when we read verse 15, he's also called the firstborn of every creature. That word firstborn provides for us the concept that he was the primary one, not as though God created him now. That is not what this teaches but rather that he's the firstborn of every creature. He has absolute preeminence, all authority, absolute prestige in terms of significance and importance. It all belongs to Jesus. For reasons that Paul will shortly describe in verse 16. Notice the word for. Quite often that can be used in a conjunctive way to provide explanation, and so it is here. For by him were all things created. Paul, how was this one Jesus then the firstborn of every creature? Verse 16, By Him were all things created that are in heaven 
and in earth, whether they be visible or invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. It is a significant thing to notice that, again, there are some who would teach a rather sad and sorry kind of doctrine in which, in fact, it is taught that Christ himself was the first thing created by God. Such could be further from the truth. If Jesus himself was God in the flesh, then that means he must have been deity. He must have been divinity and therefore, by definition, could never have been created. But if we need another text to aid us in that line of consideration, notice again how verse 16 closes. All things were created by him. It's a self-evident fact he could not have created himself. And yet, if the inspired apostle affirmed he created all things, then the Jesus could not have been created. He is for forever and eternally being with the Father. He is again deity in every form of that word. When on many occasions there were those who bowed before him and worshipped him, never did he correct them. Never did he say, I am unworthy of worship. But rather, as God in the flesh, he was entirely deserving of that worship and always gladly accepted it. In light of passages that command us to worship God, if Jesus had not been God, he sinned when he accepted worship. However, we know our Savior never sinned, Hebrews 4.15. And hence, it was not only right, it was appropriate for him to receive and to be worshipped. This text in verse 16 reminds us of the fullness of Christ's activity as the Creator. It's interesting to consider the thoroughness of that explanation. Thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, whether they be visible or invisible, all matter of authority was created by the Savior, created by Jesus Himself. That is to say, He was the executor, if you will, of God's plan in terms of the creation. In Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image. Plural pronoun us employed. The Savior had a role to play in that. In fact, in the very first verse in all the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 1, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The word God is plural in that place. Plural. You see, it was not only the Father, it was also the Son. And it was also the Holy Spirit who had a role to play in the accomplishment of that creation. The verses and the aspects of verse 16, perhaps we might notice verse 17 before we draw that conclusion, at least to this point in our lesson. He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. The fact then that in verse 17 we are told, He is before all things, reminds us first of all that of course Christ is older than all the things that He has made. For in fact, He is eternal. Did He not remind the Jews on one occasion of that fact in John eight fifty nine? Before Abraham was, I am. They were unable to understand how that could be. In fact, they became so enraged at that kind of statement, they were prepared to put Jesus to death. But yet it was a truth. For when He came to be in that manger born on that occasion to Mary in Bethlehem, that wasn't the beginning of His existence. He had long been with God in heaven prior to that, with the Holy Spirit and with the Father. The notion then that by Him all things consist reminds us of another fact that we might be tempted sometimes to forget. 
the fact that all aspects of this material universe, all aspects of the authority and the manner by which it is in fact adhered together is due to the very power of the Savior. Force of gravity is what scientists might attribute many things to, or the forces between electrons, or the forces between charged particles, and yet ultimately that which sustains all those forces and makes this universe the non-chaotic system that it is, is none other than the very word of our Savior. By Him it all holds together. Man has been unable, scientifically or mathematically, to design long-term term systems with absolute stability, but the word of the, of the Savior can do it. This universe has now been rolling onward for well over six millennia, and as such, it is still stable. It still continues onward in the manner by which we've come to appreciate the regular motion of the constellations and the other things of it. In Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3, this same fact is alluded to again. To say all these things, we have been shown the preeminence of Jesus from primarily an emphasis on the physical world. Beginning in verse 18, Paul will switch the emphasis to the spiritual considerations. If you would, let's now turn and read verses 18 through 23, the last segment of our lesson this evening. Colossians 1, verses 18 through 23. And He is the head of the body the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and, blame, and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. These passages that we've just read continue to exemplify and exalt the preeminence of Jesus. Notice verse 18 begins with the word and. Paul's thought continues onward. And he, still speaking of Jesus, he is the head of the body. We understand that here Paul identifies for us what that body is. There cannot possibly be any misunderstanding. And he is the head of the body, which by apposition is now identified the church. The body and the church are one and the same. To the Ephesians, Paul would remind them there is one body, and hence there is one church, Ephesians 4, verse 4. Thus, when he here comments that he, Jesus, is the head of the body, it's a self-evident fact then that any organization that does not have Christ as its head can thus not possibly be the church. It is simply that simple. He is the head of the body. As that church is identified, he goes on to say, who is the beginning? The church was established by our Savior. He purchased it with His blood, Acts 20, 28. He affirmed in that passage we noted earlier, I will build my church, He said. He did not leave control of it to anyone else. He affirmed shortly before He arose back to the Father in heaven in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority hath been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore 
and teach the gospel or preach to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. All authority rests with Jesus. Even in that interesting scene of the church here at Pippin, for example, or other places of which we might consider, elders do not rule in a way apart from the authority of Jesus. Notice that they are those that are supposed to convict in terms of His Word, Titus 1 verse 9. The Word of Christ is still the authority. They have been given that interesting role to play to guard the flock in such a way the flock would maintain the element of faithfulness and to follow the blessed words found in the word of truth itself. He is the head of the body, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Christ was the first to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Inasmuch as He was resurrected on that occasion, as all four gospel accounts attest, it stands as still God's guarantee to all of us that we too will be raised, that we too shall one day come forth from that grave, and in so doing shall enter into what either will be the resurrection of the just or the resurrection of condemnation. John 5, verses 28 and 9. The truth that Paul thus states here, he has stated so much in seemingly so few words, hasn't he? But then he goes on to say that in all things he, namely Jesus, may have the preeminence. On earth then today, with regard to any organization, spiritually, who is to have the preeminence? Is it a man, a group of men, a conference of men, some particular synod or diocese? Paul said, it all belongs to Christ. He hasn't given any of it to me, and I do not deserve it, but He does. That word preeminence reminds us of its meaning, which is the overwhelming brilliance and glory the absolute zenith and title, all superiority rests with Him. Oh, if only men had learned that lesson through the centuries in regard to the church, that all the superiority rests with Christ. Man is not deserving of that idea. We are fallible. We're weak. We exhibit that which is often far less than what it ought to be. And yet, there is no other foundation that man can lay than that which is laid which is Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. Paul, as brilliant and as great as he was, never sought to direct the attention to himself. It was always to Christ. Did he not say in Philippians 3, verse 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Paul, what was important to you? Was it personal glory, personal edification, personal sustenance and name recognition? No, he said. I have gladly given it all up that I might come to know Christ. That should be my approach and yours today. The understanding that ultimately all preeminence rests with the Savior. Those men who have taken the sad opportunity to garner it to themselves will one day ruefully regret that when they stand before the very one who shall then judge them and have to answer for taking the preeminence that rightly belonged to him. Verse number 19, Paul continues onward. For it pleased the Father that in him, namely in Christ, all fullness should dwell. 
And that word fullness means fulfillment. It means completion. The completeness of all things is found in Jesus. Doesn't that remind us, at least interestingly, about the features and facts associated with what completeness means and what what fulfillment means? Notice that the very will and pleasure of God was such that it would be found in Jesus. If that's true, how much of it is found then outside Jesus? How much of it is found otherwise in some place beyond Him? The answer again is self-evident, isn't it? None of it. Completeness and fulfillment are all found in Jesus. Doesn't that remind us of the sadness of those who strive to live life apart from Jesus? Can they ever then exhibit fullness and fulfillment? Can they ever live a life that might be described as complete from the eyes of heaven? No, for all fullness is found in Jesus. All fulfillment and all completeness. That reminds us of a text found a bit later. But you might already notice in chapter 2, Paul will revisit that concept. In verses 9 and 10, he says, For in Him, namely in Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in Him. Paul, where were the Colossians complete? Where are members of the Pippin Church of Christ complete? In Christ. Nowhere else. So much so that in verse 20, we are described from a different perspective, that glorious blessing that still stands as ours. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things into Himself. By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. That agency of reconciliation, again, is stated to be Christ. So many times in this text, something is identically linked with Jesus. Redemption, forgiveness, headship, preeminence, and now, not only completeness and fullness, but reconciliation. The great God of heaven, of course, is perfect. And when Adam and Eve chose to disobey Him, and thus bring sin upon themselves they found themselves separated from God. And is it not still the case? Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. It isn't God that has moved. When you and I sin, we are the ones that race away from him. We cause separation to be between us and God. If ever there is to be a union again between the two, there must be a reconciliation, a bringing back of those that have been banished. Was not that interesting case of that woman mentioned in 2 Samuel 14, 14, that it is the pleasure of God to bring back His banished. And so too, that's true of us. Though banished by sin, God sent His Son... And by the nature of the efficacy of that blood and the power of forgiveness made available therein, we can be reconciled to Him. But the agency is the blood of Jesus. Again, verse 20, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Oh, what a sad state you and I would be in had the Savior not shed His blood at Calvary. Oh, how thankful we should be that He did not call upon those legions of angels to come and rescue Him. He stated He had the power to call legions of angels, and they gladly would have rescued Him from the dire circumstances of the moment. But the Lord knew the plan of God, 
And he followed it through completely and entirely. And oh, how blessed we are. For by the shedding of that blood, we can enjoy reconciliation to God. And that reconciliation is so much so in verse 21 that these Colossians that were sometime alienated and enemies in their mind from God had now been reconciled. And haven't all of us been in that same case? There was very much a time when you and I were enemies and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, Ephesians 2.12. And thus, being the enemy of God, we were an alien from Him, entirely lost, deserving of hell. And yet, we notice just like those Colossians, we have been reconciled. We now enjoy fellowship with Him, a union and communion that sometimes is difficult to put in words. But we understand by Scripture how it's so wonderfully in existence the opportunity to entertain the hope of salvation in heaven. These thoughts have moved Paul to say in verse number 22, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. It might well be noted, as we have affirmed so far, that now Paul uses three adjectives, three presentations to describe that case of us who enjoy fellowship with God through the blood of Jesus. By the act of Christ, we have, are able to be presented holy, unblameable, unreprovable. I list for your consideration the meaning of some of those words. The word unblameable means without blemish. Furthermore, that word unreprovable means absolutely blameless. To stand in a way perfect and complete before God. That's a remarkable thing. It's an incredible thing to contemplate, and yet only by virtue of Christ's blood. Isn't it any wonder then as that verse closes, it is the sight of God that is most significant. It is not the way we appear before somebody else. Our friends and neighbors may have a view of us that is not entirely right, but yet in God's sight, He's able to look upon us and see the blood of His Son that's cleansed us from sin. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, we remember the great blessing of what God sees in us because we're Christians. He sees Christ's blood that continually flows to make us perfect in His sight. The final thought then found in verse 23, as Paul draws to a conclusion some of these facts, reminds us of the importance that is ours to remain grounded and settled. Verse 23 begins with a tiny little word, but oh, how significant, if. There's a condition attached to this matter of salvation. If you and I are to appear blameless and holy and unreprovable before God, he says, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled. One-time obedience is not enough, is it? That day that you and I were baptized, we know the goodness that we felt. We know what happened when our sins were washed away. But from that time forward, it's necessary for us to live faithfully until death. Revelation 2.10. He says, if you continue grounded and settled, it, is it then any wonder that we still need to be grounded and settled? And I've listed for you the meaning of those very words. That word grounded reminds us of the diligence and the devotion attached to our service in Christianity to be firmly founded and rooted upon that which is truth, to be settled, 
to not be whipped about by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4, verse 14, but rather to appreciate the steadfast trust and truthfulness of the very Word of God which cannot be set aside, but rather it is the foundation of life, grounded and settled. Notice that that hope of the gospel is then the anchor that ties us to truth in every regard. And it is furthermore that very matter that Paul had preached and had been preached to every creature under heaven. Paul himself acknowledged to be a minister to that fact. I'd urge you to notice as we draw near the conclusion of our lesson this evening, having advanced to verse 23, we've been shown the preeminence of Christ. That preeminence might well be summed up in these words as we conclude our lesson. What grand benefit is ours by forgiveness due to the very blood of Jesus. And in all things, He stands preeminently. The very one who, of course, made forgiveness and remission possible. The very one who is the head of the church. The very one who allows you and me by His blood to stand holy before God. The very one who in verses 13 and 14 has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Has your life been such that you are an open testimony to the preeminence of Jesus? Or in fact, is it a reproach to the character of Jesus' life? This very night, if we could be of assistance to you in your obedience to the Savior, realize with me that Christ Himself, as He offers God's saving grace to us, is such that we must believe Him to be the Son of God, repent of our sins, Confess His name as Lord and Master, as Savior, as the Son of God, and be baptized for remission of sins. Once you've done that, live faithfully until death. Heaven then will be yours. But if you have not lived in a way that's grounded and settled according to the hope of the gospel, come back to that first love tonight. We'd be honored to pray with you and for you. If in either of those ways we could be of assistance to you, will you let that be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?